Reading this evening is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Therefore, he is a mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive his promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems us from the, trans- from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Good evening, everybody. You guys can fill Robbie in on that one later. Robbie, do you know how many times I've got up in the morning and said good evening? And how many times in the evening I've got up and said good morning? I can pick on him now. He's an adult. He's graduated and uh, going to college. So have some fun at Robbie's expense. He can take it. I'll tell you what, if anybody can take pranks it's Robbie and if anyone can do pranks it's Robbie so some of you are sitting there going boy that was kind of mean of him to do that listen come spend a week at camp with Robbie he's fine trust me and we love him and uh, glad to see him succeed and uh, this week enjoy his uh, graduation ceremony and uh, having a celebration at the house and as well as uh, Josh and Aaron here this last weekend, some more to come, I know Sydney and um, some others are graduating here this week, maybe today, I believe. And so there's, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of transition. It's a pretty frightening time uh, for a high school student because they've never been to college and it's going to change the scenery. And so I think just about all of them are, are taken off uh, to go somewhere to school uh, that I know of. So. Keep them in your prayers. They're going to need to have a fortified faith. Uh, they're going to need lessons like this one today <laughs> from someone who's, who's learned from the school of hard knocks. And um, they're going to need to stay in the, in the Word, which, which Kevin picked out a song called Give Me the Bible. And uh, there will be those who tell them to lay down their Bibles. And they need to have that faith. So be prayerful for them as they go off. And uh, the learning doesn't stop for them. The parenting sure doesn't stop. It's just a a time of transition that's uh, a little bit nerve-wracking, even if you're excited about it and you have faith. And that's not the only time you go through that transition in life, is it? Uh, You you might move. You might take on a new job. You might have your first child, um, get married, stuff that we just don't have experience with. And this fellow that we're going to talk about today had no experience with his, with his job, with his newfound field of expertise. He had no experience, but he did have some tremendous tutelage available to him. There were two people in the Bible that bore the name Saul. There is Saul, the son of Kish, from Gibeah in Benjamin. That's the tribe of Benjamin and their territory not too far north of Jerusalem. And then there is Saul of Tarsus, who we read about beginning in Acts chapter 7, or 9, excuse me, and, uh, or no, 7. And uh, he is a Pharisee in the time of Jesus, 
And uh, he's a learned man whom God renames and, and uh, whom we've come to know as the Apostle Paul. So Paul's name was Saul also. And uh, there's a striking similarity between the two besides their name, and that is that both had periods of their life where they were faithful to God, and both had periods of their life where they were unfaithful to God, or a period where they were unfaithful to God. And, and uh, the difference is that, and it's an eternal difference, it's, it's a big difference. It's a sad difference uh, for the one whom we're going to talk about today, and that is that Saul, who became Israel's first king, the Saul of the Old Testament, began humbly a servant of God. And he lived out his latter days in disobedience and unfaithfulness. He died in it. Now, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, flipped that around. He was, as he described himself, a violently arrogant man. And he humbled himself in the service of the Lord all his days. Both were soldiers in one way or another. Both were servants at one time or another. We're going to focus on this one Saul of the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. God sees him. God sees him and recruits him when God is rejected uh, as the king of Israel. Samuel's really disappointed that the people are, are, are clamoring for a king. They want to be like the other nations. And God says, Samuel, we're going to anoint a king, but I'm going to pick him. You know, how many times have you done that in your life? You caved a little bit, you said, okay, but uh, I, I get to pick, right? And uh, that's what God does. Uh, Samuel is the last true judge of Israel. And you can read about him in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, beginning. We talked about his mother last week, Hannah, and how she endured to overcome hardships and uh, had to continue to do that through her life and faith. Now, let's not leave that and we contrast that with what happens to Saul in these readings and in the sermon today. But the people wanted to be like the other nations. And God had to comfort Samuel, actually, and, and say, Samuel... They've rejected you because they've rejected me. They've rejected me as their king. And so uh, God reserved the right to choose this uh, first king, and he found this Benjamite, Saul. He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd uh, from this small town of Gibeah. But he was tall and handsome, head and shoulders above the rest around him. You knew it when he walked into the room or came into town that it was him. You could tell afar off. Big man. Uh, the Bible says he was more handsome than any man in Israel. Naturally, people are attracted to him because of his stature and because of his uh, handsome appearance. And God was attracted to him too, but, but not for that reason unless there was some sublime reasons behind God choosing him with those features. But God sees a, a man who is a shepherd out in the field, and uh, he says, this is the one I want you to anoint. So through a series of providence by some lost donkeys, uh, God's doing, uh, Saul meets up with Samuel, and Samuel anoints him and uh, declares him to become the first king 
of Israel. And it takes Saul a little while to soak this in. But uh, his best feature was that he was small in his own eyes, as Samuel put it. He was small in his own... Now think about it. He's probably 6'8", something like this, maybe taller. But in his own eyes, he was small. He was from a family of prominence and power, great influence, a mighty man, Kish is described as, in his community and in his region and in the tribe of Benjamin. And Samuel said, Saul, there was, there was a time when you were just small in your own eyes. And we see that come out on uh, Inauguration Day when they're choosing the king. Nobody knows except Samuel who it's going to be, and he allows it to play out through the casting of lots. In other words, God is involved. And the lot falls on the family of Kish and then the man named Saul, and they can't find him. Now Saul knows because Samuel already told him. Saul shows up for the great event, but he, he hangs back. Now all Israel comes to Mizpah. So you can imagine in this little town how many donkeys, camels, etc. were there. The equipment, the carts, and so forth that they brought. And Saul's hanging out back with all the equipment. It'd be like uh, when they go to inaugurate a president, he's in a, he's in a parking garage somewhere about four blocks down. <laughs> And, he's, and he's, he's kind of just hanging back, hiding, like maybe nobody will see me, and maybe they'll just choose somebody else if I'm not there. Well, that's a look at his nature from early on. Uh, he's not a fearful man. He is not a um, timid man, but he just, he's just wrestling with this idea of a, of a king, number one, being the first one, and then thinking to himself, surely there's got to be someone else. But... After this time when he becomes uh, anointed and appointed, we can read of his successes. Something happens in uh, the east side of Jordan that just fires him up and sets him on his path to successful leadership. And that is the children of Ammon. That is one of Lot's uh, descendants. And, and their people to the east of Gad and the half-tribe of half-tribe of Manasseh, come against a small city of Gad and threaten them into service. And they say, well, well how about if we just, we just serve you? And they say, well, we'll let you serve us if you let us put out your right eye and bring reproach on Israel. And they say, well, well hold on a minute. We've got, we've got to talk about this. And so they send message and Saul's enraged. It says in the same verse, the Holy Spirit, chapter 11, verse 6, comes upon him and he becomes very angry, which is interesting, isn't it? The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he becomes very angry. Those two uh, things can go together if it's righteous indignation. Jesus himself uh, was indignant on occasion and, and uh, for the right reason. So he goes into battle. He... Uh, he takes 300,000 men with him, rallies a lot of people. They're excited about this new king, and he overwhelms the Ammonites, sends them home scattered, and, and very few left. And so with this success in battle now under his belt, he's taken to Gilgal, and they have a great celebration, and they do what, what Samuel says, uh, renew the kingdom. They, they kind of uh, initiate him and uh, celebrate this new kingship. So... Saul 
is approached by some people who say, hey, do you remember when you were inaugurated, there were some dissenters? Some who said, well, who is this man and how is he going to be able to save him? Let's bring them out and execute them. Let's make them part of this celebration. And Saul sees that as pretty distasteful. He says, hey, the Lord has given Israel success this day. No one's going to be killed. And so you get some glimpses into his heart early on and his faithfulness to God. He, he credits God with this battle. And so things are looking pretty good. And God wants the king to be aligned with him. He says, your king is not going to, to be one who stands in between me and you. Your king is going to be one among you. And if the king falls, I will do to you and your king like I would do to you if you fell uh, without a king. And so there's really no special treatment that this king is to receive either from the people or from God. Then as early as chapter 13 we see some signs that Saul's character is changing, that his position as king is starting to go to his head, and the higher he lifts his heart, the lower he becomes in nature and character, in sin, and one act of disobedience after another, uh, and without true repentance and confession and taking ownership of his sin, his nature becomes to use a word that we use today, uh, very cynical. He becomes very cynical. He, he's, he doesn't trust people. He uh, has a negative view of life. And it's because of sin. That's one of the things we're going to look at here in a minute. And so this is some of the background to uh, what happens in this spiral, uh, which is, is kind of... Um, highlighted, I suppose, on the day that Samuel told him that God has taken the kingdom away from you and has given it to another man. And yet this other man is not yet anointed. This other man is, is not going to take over the kingship for some time. But because God told Samuel to tell him, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to another that's better than you, better behaved than you, Saul, be just, he, just, he just goes into a, a paranoid rage. And uh, we can learn some things from this, church. We, we definitely can. This, this, to me, is not too far removed at all from what happens today when people are removed from God's presence. So, from this perspective, uh, I would like to look at this. How would Saul have responded if Jesus were with him in his day? What impact would the gospel of Jesus Christ have had on Saul if he had access to it like you and I do? I want to kind of set that up for a reason. We're going to compare some things. Maybe look at what Jesus would advise him on occasions. Um, uh, to do and, and how to be, and maybe that'll help us in a number of ways, but not the least of which would be to be, to be more appreciative indeed of the gospel that we have uh, so available and so thoroughly given to us today. So Saul needs uh, the gospel pretty desperately. I mentioned as he rose to power, his heart was exalted, and here's Here's really what God became to him. 
Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 if you're not there already. Look at the first verse. We're going to begin reading there. And I want you to notice how God becomes offensive to Saul. Subtly, but definitely. God's words, God's will, God, becomes offensive to Saul. Now, he wouldn't say that, but indeed, God is offensive to him. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Utterly destroy them. That's the command of God. Now look at verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. So that whole south region of Canaan is full of Amalekites. And Saul attacked them. And if you come down to verse 9, you'll see that Saul spared King Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Isn't that interesting that everything despised and worthless included the people? But they spared some of the best livestock. They, didn't, they, they despised the Amalekites more than they did some of this prized livestock. It says, Saul and the people spared them. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, listen to this. You don't hear this from, from Genesis chapter 6 until now, where God is regretting and grieved uh, that in this language. He says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose up in the morning, early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, now listen to what he did. Saul went to Carmel, as in the Mount Carmel area on the coast, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, as is to say, he has skirted you. He has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Somewhere in between receiving the commandment from Samuel to utterly destroy Amalek, and to the point where they're on the way home, Saul said, I'm not going to listen to what the Lord said to do. I'm going to bring all this good livestock home. This can make me rich. We can use all this, uh, all these assets. And so he began to look at God as uh, serving Him as a grudging obligation. He began to see God's words as 
offending him and his own will. And he began to develop that will. Do you remember how we've talked about several times the word devoted means to be voted down from? And so to be devoted, for example, to God means that you vote yourself down below God. You were at one time in your life living in sin and you had placed yourself and your desires above God and His desires, but by being devoted to Him, you learned to place yourself under Him. Well, Saul was about half devoted because he did some things well and he did some things for the right reason. But he wanted to do his will as well. And so, you know, when you're half devoted and maybe you just move yourself down here, what level are you on with that other person now? You kind of consider them co-equals. Like, well, I'll listen to God. I'll take his advice and listen to some of his input. But I also have some things to say. And he kind of put himself there on the same level with God. And when you do that, God becomes your competition. And God says, I can't dwell that way with someone. It doesn't work that way. I am God. And so Saul elevates himself to that degree. Had Jesus been there, he may have said to Saul, Saul, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What will it profit a man, Saul, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Samuel reminded me, he said, Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, this is in chapter 15, verse 17, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord your God anoint you king over Israel? You see, you did have it all at one point. You did have it all. But when you began to move up on par with God and call shots with God, you began to lose it from there. God is the one who has lifted you up. He is the one who has exalted you. Jesus may have taught him some of those lessons that we read about in Mark chapter 8. Look what else he does. He tries to appease, not please, God. To use a phrase that, that Anthony uh, used here a few months back. He tried to appease God. Watch what happens now beginning in verse 13. After he says, Blessed are you of the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep I hear and the, and the lowing of the cattle in my ears? And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. That's good enough, isn't it? Samuel, that's good enough, right? Listen to this. And Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you, were, you, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. See, they were the implement of God's wrath upon these people whom God had had enough of. Why then, he says, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil to do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back King Agag, king of Amalek. 
I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He's trying to forcefully respond and reject what Samuel is proposing here. And then he goes on to say, But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel says this great peace, which has rung down through the ages and is so relevant to us today in our own lives, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. See, Samuel didn't back down and buy into this watered-down version of obedience. He just probably stood there shaking his head. No, you didn't obey. So they're having it out. Now listen to Saul's change of strategy. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, picture this drama in your mind. Saul seizes the edge of his robe and tears it. Well, that annoyed Samuel more, tearing his robe. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours. Oh, down in Bethlehem, just a few miles below here. Do you know the name? Another shepherd, young man. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is, a, for he is not a man that he should relent, or we might say brush this under the rug. Then he said, listen to this, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. You see, Saul's motive is found right here in verse 30. All this hoopla he's trying to, 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 to cover up and just water down what happened. Honor me now. He's trying to take something that can only be given him. And he's trying to take something that is due God, which he honored him a couple of chapters ago, and he's saying, honor me, and he says, I want honor right now. His demeanor's changed, hasn't it? Honor me now. There's really the motive in this passage. God saw it, Samuel saw it, and Saul, in doing so, may have been met by Jesus along the way with words like this, Saul, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Luke 12, 4 and 5. And the Lord might have then built him back up as he did in the following verses in Luke 12 by saying, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? 
But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Saul, I rebuke you, but Saul, I want to build you back up. That was the nature of Jesus Christ. And Saul may have received that from the Lord if he had been in his day. But Samuel gave him that weighty advice that to obey is better than sacrifice. He may have honestly feared Samuel more than God because every time he was found out and had disfavor with Samuel and God, he did one of two things. Now, <clears throat> this may resonate. This may resonate. He would begin religious talk. Begin religious talk. Well, we brought him back for God. Doing this for God, actually. And I want to go worship. Samuel, you're actually hindering me here. Can we just get on with it? All right, I've sinned. Can we just... I just want to go worship God, Samuel, with all this, these sheep and cattle. You see, his religious activity, he wanted, to, he wanted to throw that out there to appease God. He wanted to say, if I can just do so much good, maybe God will overlook all my sins. But that doesn't provide personal resolution for sin, does it? Maybe if I just maybe if I just go to church this week, I'll tell you what, I'll put a little bit more in the collection plate. I might even do some nice things for my neighbor. I've been telling him I'm going to get over and take care of some things around their property for him. I think I'll go over and do that. And surely God won't look with disfavor upon me for this. Oh, we find a lot of ways, I think, to talk religious talk, to try to smooth over things we've done, but that doesn't resolve the problem. Jesus might have said to him, the hour is coming when the true worshipers saw will worship in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Here's what else He did other than start religious talking. He is blaming other people. You know, when we stand before Christ on the judgment day, we'll stand alone, independent of anyone else. We'll stand alone. When I say alone, I don't know if, if there'll be others around us. And I don't believe that we'll have to stand and try to somehow explain ourselves. God knows where we stand right now. However, the picture is set for us to see ourselves as coming before Him face to face. And if there is sin unresolved in your life, you'll have to give an explanation for that, and this won't do it. Well, the people. Well, I feared them. Yeah, but I would have lost this. I just won't do it. Saul tried that too. He tried to blame others. He tried to compare himself to others to, to make, it, make that sin go away, but that wasn't going to appease God, nor resolve his sin problem. Saul began to see things with temporal eyes. He began to look at the kingdom as his. He began to take his sights off of God. And because of that, he wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. To which Jesus may have said, whoever desires to be great among you, Saul, shall be your slave, your servant. And the gospel is that Whoever is least in the kingdom shall be greater than all these. 
Saul was struggling to see God. When Saul rejected God, the Holy Spirit left him. Just as surely as in chapter 11, verse 6, that the Spirit of God came upon him to empower him to do great things, when he spurned God over and over again, the Spirit departed from him. I think that's what David was really afraid of. Think about it. His successor, when he sinned with Bathsheba, and he wrote in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was his biggest fear, was that God's presence would leave him, that he would not be blessed by him. So here's another thing that Saul needed. He needed the Spirit of God. His spirit became distressed. Now whether this distressing spirit was something God supernaturally imposed upon him, or a demon that possessed him, I do not know, but it very likely could have simply been the same distress that falls upon a human being today when the Spirit of God is not present in their life. When they're without hope. When you do not have God's Spirit in your life, you are on your own. And Saul was greatly distressed. The Gospel promises to every man not just the king of Israel, not just to the great judges. The gospel promises to every man that if you repent and are baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will come to you, dwell in you, with you, empower you to change your heart, to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. And we have that opportunity through the gospel. Now, here's the kicker. Let me get to the last slide here. Here's the kicker. You might say, well, why did you spend so much time, Matt, setting up this situation where if Jesus had only been there, if, if, if Saul only knew the Gospel, I want to propose to you that Saul did have the Gospel preached to him. Do you know where? In Genesis chapter 3, when God said that the seed of woman would crush Satan, and then in chapter 12, when he said through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And he brought them into Canaan's land to set up a nation of people through whom the Christ would come. The gospel was preached to him. Peter says so when he said, even during the time of the flood, even during the time of the flood, that the Spirit of God... 1 Peter 3.19, went and preached to the spirits in prison. The Spirit was speaking through Noah and his preaching to those who were in sin, the Gospel. And it was a foreshadowing of the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel was preached to Abraham. The Gospel was preached through Joshua. The Gospel was, in fact, accessible by Saul. He could have seen it as Moses saw it. He was a spirit in prison, but by, by uh, foresight, he could have seen the Gospel just as we, 2,000 years later, see the Gospel in retrospect. It was in promise to him. And by it, he could have been right with God and been saved by the blood of Christ when Christ came. The Hebrew letter says in chapter 11, 
All of these people of faith died uh, in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them. Saul is not in that list. It says they embraced those promises and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Saul wanted to anchor down and make the earth his kingdom. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Saul said, my homeland is wherever my borders are, and I'm going to fight to stretch my borders. And truly, if they'd called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return back to sin. Saul went backwards. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Saul was happy and content with his own. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. God was ashamed that Saul would call Him His God. He departed from Him to make in no uncertain terms very clear to Israel that he had left the presence of the king. Saul was supposed to see Christ as Moses. So in this passage in Hebrews, in chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, the Bible says that by faith Moses, when he became of age, listen closely, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming, Moses, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses was looking into the future by faith, walking in faith in this promise that Christ is going to come. There will be one come and save us all from our sins. Saul refused to do that. The gospel was in promise then. It's in promise now. And let us learn... It's such a sad story I know today, but let us learn from Saul's life, what he had, what he lost, what he could have regained. And today, what we have, what we can lose, but what we can regain. And if you are one that has not had the gospel presented to you, I propose to you today, you've heard it, that Christ came to save sinners, that we are to be repent and be baptized into Him for the remission of our sins, that the Holy Spirit may come and dwell in us. That is the promise until He comes again. And if you're one who has departed from the gospel hope, if you're one who you feel that the Holy Spirit may have departed from you, He will return to you if you return to Him. We see this again over and over as well. Don't be as Saul of Gibeah. Be as Saul of Tarsus. And turn to the Lord, humble yourself before Him, and let His Spirit come in and change your life, transform your life for Christ. Let's stand and sing this song.